So open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We'll read there beginning with verse 14. And two weeks from this morning is Palm Sunday. We'll take communion in our services on that day. That's always a special time for us. And then that means three weeks from today is Easter Sunday. And I want to ask you to invite someone to come with you on Easter. There's someone who might come and hear the message of the gospel if you invited them. And I want to ask you to use that opportunity of Easter Sunday. And uh, while I'm asking things, if you're able-bodied and uh, don't mind parking farther away, that's always a good thing for us. Park closer to Highway 50 or far across the street and save uh, close-in parking for um, mothers with children and just people who need a little closer parking place. Well, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to talk. We've been looking at the seven churches mentioned here. Next week we'll be in chapter 4 and continue through the book of Revelation. But uh, seven churches that are mentioned, the Lord gives us letters. Jesus writes to seven different churches. And we're reminded in each of these that the church matters to God. God made the church. It's a, it's a divine institution, not just a human institution, but it's made up of people like us. And that's the problem, that the people that are part of the church are imperfect people because that's who we are. And so we've been able to learn that God values the church, that he made us for the church, that he wants us to be connected to the church but we're also reminded that God um, knows that there are imperfections in the church and that God wants us to grow. And so he writes these letters to these churches and to us and to us. And so let's note what the Bible says here to the church at Laodicea. Verse 14, the Bible says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's talk about the lukewarm church or lukewarm Christians. And that's something perhaps you know something about. I, I know something about that world. So I'll tell you my story. I, was, um, I grew up in church. My parents brought me to church from the earliest age. I heard the message of the gospel all of my life. When I was nine years old, I was convicted that I was a sinner who needed a Savior. And I repented of my sin, and I asked Christ to save me as best I knew how. I placed my trust in Jesus, who lived for me, who died for me, who rose from the grave for me, and Christ saved me. And I continued to be in the church. I was uh, through those next years, my teenage years, though, I will tell you, I, I just was less, uh, though I was still just as active in church, and I was, I think you'd say about me, I think if you'd have known me then, you'd say, well, Doug's a good, you know, he's a pretty good kid. He's fine. He's fine. He goes to church. He's not terribly rebellious. He's fine. But I knew God wanted something more than fine. And I knew that I had a tendency to be kind of lukewarm. I didn't know very many Christians in my junior high or my high school. I didn't have many peers who I saw really following the Lord and who were excited about faith. And I kind of drifted into that 
lukewarm condition that happens so often. Some of you know that. Some of you are in that condition right now. And God used various things in my life to help me kind of take the, some steps in spiritual growth. I, um, our family moved and we got in a church when I was a senior in high school that had a youth ministry. And that student ministry was really important to me. I saw some peers there who were really excited about spiritual matters, who were vibrant in their faith, who were having daily devotions, who were sharing their faith with other people at school, who were growing in their faith. And that just impacted me. And then my first year of college at a Christian college, I began to, I met some great Christian young men and some others who helped me to grow in my faith. And I began to take those next steps forward. And it's part of why I care so deeply about our student ministry. And and even if you're not directly involved in student ministry, you ought to care about this important age and stage in life. And our young adult ministry, our YA ministry, and it's such an important thing. I love to see some vibrancy in those areas. I love to see some teenagers and some 20s who are following the Lord fully. And God cares deeply about that. And so when I talk about the lukewarm Christian or the lukewarm church, I know something about that. Perhaps you do as well. So let's talk about three characteristics of lukewarm churches and lukewarm Christians and how God might teach us from the church at Laodicea more of what he wants from us and the passion, the vibrancy, the revival spirit that God wants us to have. Let's note three things together. Number one, note that they, they forget who Jesus is. Would you just write these th- three things down? They forget who Jesus is. That is one of the dangers, one of the reasons we become complacent in life we become lukewarm in life is because we forget who the Lord is. And so Jesus speaks here to the church at Laodicea in verse 14, and he talks about his nature. He said, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, and then he describes himself. Thus says the amen. That's the first description. Thus says the amen. The word amen is a Hebrew word. It means so be it, or a word sort of a completion of finality. One of my grandchildren, uh, Vicki watched one of the grandchildren in her house for a time when she was young. And by the way, I say stories about my grandkids because I'm in a grandparent club. And if you don't tell enough stories about your grandchildren, they kick you out of the club. And I don't want to have that happen. I want to be a member in good standing. So I'll tell you about this granddaughter who was at her house. And when we would pray at a meal or something, she didn't just say amen. She would say, amen, she would say with great enthusiasm. We thought it was so cute because we think our grandchildren are much cuter than anyone else's grandchildren, of course. And we just love that. Amen, she would say. And the Lord is saying about himself, I am the amen. I'm the finality of your prayers. I'm the completion of your spirit, your soul. I'm the, I'm the so be it of life. He is our amen. And then he describes himself as the faithful and true witness. It's sort of like at a court case. Maybe you've been to court for some problem, and I've, I've only watched it on television. Fortunately, I've not had the experience of being a defendant or something to this point. But maybe they call in a star witness, and the star witness says, oh, this is an expert maybe who knows about some subject, or someone who's an eyewitness who can testify. And Jesus is saying, I'm the faithful and the true witness. You want to know who the Father is? I'm the faithful, true witness of the Father. You want to know what God is like? I'm the faithful and true witness of what God is like. You want to know the truth, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad? I'm the faithful and true witness of those things. The Lord is our star witness, our evidence, our, our embodiment of those things. 
He's the means by which we can know the truth. He's the means by, by the way, the world has all kinds of, I mean, it's always giving evidence, it's always giving a witness as well, saying think like this and act like this, and every song has a witness, every movie has a witness, but the Lord is saying, I'm the faithful and true witness, and the world's lying to us about many things, lying to us about many things, and the Lord's saying, I'm going to tell you the truth, even though it's sometimes countercultural and difficult. I want you to know the truth because it's his nature. And then he says, he, is, he describes himself as the originator. Notice this in verse 14, the originator of God's creation. So Jesus is, is saying he is the means by which, the origin of all that we see, of all that we can know, all that we can see. There are only two options. There is the, there is the option that says everything came from nothing, or that someone created this something. And Jesus is saying, everything that you see, I created as a part of the, of the Godhead. Everything that you see, everything that you can know, everything beyond this world, everything in this world came from me. And the world says, how can you, listen, how can you Christians believe there's someone who made this world? And let me tell you, it just takes so much faith to believe that everything came from nothing, that this world of such design had no designer. And the Lord is saying the reason there is design is because I have designed it. The reason things are here, there is this something, is because I am a someone. And I am thankful that the Lord shows us who, who he is. Can I just remind you of why this matters to you for a moment? It's saying you're not just, listen, you're not just a clump of cells that has no value and no worth, which the world is saying indirectly all the time. And God is saying, no, you're created in my image of tremendous value and wealth. Tremendous value. You matter to me. I created you. I created you in my image. And you have a purpose in life. And you're not an accident. God made you for a reason. And you have great potential in Christ. And the more you see of who God is, the better you'll see of, of who, who you are. And one reason many people struggle to see the reality of themselves is because they struggle to see the reality of who God is. Everything that was made, created by him, the faithful and true witness, the amen, that's his nature. And then he gives us his, his warning here in verse 15. I know your works, he says. By the way, isn't it good to know that the Lord knows our works? Like he knows what we're going through. Maybe you brought some adversity with you this day, and God knows what you're going through. You're going through some problems or some difficulties, God knows. Maybe you've taken some fledgling first steps forward in your faith. You started to maybe get active in a devotional life for the first time, really reading God's word for the first time, really digging into prayer for the first time. The Lord knows. Maybe you've begun to serve in some way. Maybe it's behind the scenes and there's not been too much appreciation of it to this point, but the Lord knows. And he said to the church at Laodicea, I know your works. And then he says this, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, he said. You're lukewarm. The church at Laodicea would have understood something about lukewarm water because that was their condition. There were three kind of cities in that area, and Colossae had cold water that came out of the mountains. I mean, it's cold and pure and great. And then Herapolis had hot water that bubbled from the ground and 
It was filled with minerals, and people would come there to, to soak in that hot water. It's like a hot tub that we would have today. But Laodicea was in between. And so they would pipe the hot water from a distance, but by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. It still had all the minerals, all the taste, in a bad way, but it was lukewarm. And the Lord said, you're like that. You're not the refreshing cool. You're not the, you're not the hot, bubbling hot tub. You're the in-between. You're the in-between. You're not standing for me, living for me, following me. You're not rebelling from me or running from me in outward ways, but you're lukewarm. And he warns them. He said, um, verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Strong. Strong on the Lord who judges us. And by the way, he's going to talk in a moment about why he does that. He reminds us of who he is. And I want you to see Jesus for who he is. I want you to see that the amen cares about you enough to warn you. The the faithful and true witness cares enough about you to warn you. The, the originator of creation, the one who would make all that we can see, of everything God created in this world, he cares about you. And he warns you and reminds you of this danger. Maybe you're here a lot like me as a teenager, just sort of lukewarm and in between and a foot in both worlds. And you come to church on Sunday morning, and that's great and good, but on Monday morning... You have a foot in a different world, and God's reminding you that he, he made you for something greater, something deeper, and something more lasting. Let's notice a second characteristic. They misunderstand their situation. They misunderstand their situation. We have a difficult time being aware of ourselves. A lack of self-awareness is common, and the church at Laodicea lacks self-awareness. They misunderstood a couple of areas. First, they misunderstood their poverty. Verse 17 says, you say, here's what Laodicea says, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing. By the way, this is perhaps why the church at Laodicea so applies to the Western world, because we are, in many ways, by the world's standards, we are so wealthy. Those of you who have traveled, maybe you've traveled with the military, or you've traveled just in some other form, or you've gone with us to a mission trip somewhere, you've seen some poverty. And what we call, even the poor among us in America has advantages that much of our world doesn't know. And what we have today compared to just a few decades ago, it's amazing how much. And so we say, well, listen, we're rich, we're fine. That's the danger that comes with our prosperity. We say, God, listen, I don't really need you right now because I'm fine. I've got what I need. I mean, sure, gas prices are kind of high and taxes are up, but you know, I'm okay. I'm making it. If I get into really desperate situations, I'll call you. And the Lord says to the church at Laodicea that said, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and I need nothing. The Lord says, you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. The situation isn't as you've seen it. It's a lot worse than you think. You've got some terrible problems. You've got some poverty. You've got some difficulties. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I don't, I don't know how many of you still have uh, checking accounts. I've still got a checking account. My youngest son will never have a checkbook in his life, I guess. And so if you have a checking account, you have to reconcile it. And banks do that for you now. But in the old days, you had to do it yourself. And 
um, man, I, I hate for you to miss that joy. You, those of you who are younger who might not ever have a checkbook, it's a lot of fun to reconcile your bank book. My, my dad was not a, re, a really, he was not really big on reconciling uh, bank statements and things like that. That wasn't really his favorite thing to do. When mom told me when she and dad got married early in their marriage, uh, she said, how much money do we have in the checking account? And dad said, I'm not sure, maybe a couple hundred dollars. And my mom said, you're not sure. My mom was not someone for uncertainty. And so she took it upon herself to reconcile the checkbook. And she found out they had like $2.07 or something like that in the checkbook, not a couple hundred dollars. It's so surprising how many people, by the way, have this same uh, difficulty. And we think, man, I've got a lot. And then, oh, it's not so much. I'm really rich. And they find out I'm not. I'm in poverty. And the Lord is saying, I want you to be honest with yourself. The Lord who shows us who he is uses that to show us who he is. And he said to the church at Laodicea, a church of wealth and privilege, a church like the Western world, you are poor. You've misunderstood how poor you are. Not only do they misunderstand their poverty, but they misunderstood their need. And so the Bible says in verse 18, I advise you, the Lord says, I advise you. Do you have a financial advisor? If you get along the way, perhaps you'll get a financial advisor and they'll talk to you about how you should invest your money. And if they're a good financial advisor, they'll probably help you to think long-term rather than short-term to make wise decisions instead of foolish decisions. Well, some of you may get advice from some terrible people. Maybe you have a, the, you know, the guy at work who gives you advice. And you make bad decisions because of it. Or maybe you get your advice from Uncle Harry. He, he, lost his, and he lost all of his money, and he can help you lose all of yours, perhaps. And you get bad advice. But what if the Lord himself is advising you? What would the Lord say to you? I advise you. That's a strong word. I advise you. He tells them. He advises the church at Laodicea in three areas. First, he tells them to buy refined gold. To buy from me, from the Lord, he's saying, gold refined in the fire. Now, refined gold means it's gone through the fire, through great heat, and all of the impurities are removed. And so only the value, the gold, is left, the most valuable. And the Lord is saying, I want you to value the things that last and the things that count. Sometimes God puts us through the fire as a means of us seeing what really is valuable, what really counts, and what really matters. Maybe you're going through a fire right now. It's painful, and it's hard, and it's hot. But God would use that to help you to see what really matters. If you went through, heaven forbid, a house fire, and you lost all the things of this world, what is it that really counts? What is really valuable? And some of the things that we think of as this is what really, this is what's most important, are of such little value. We put all of our, we're chasing things of little value. And the Lord is saying, I want you to find true value. What is it that counts? What's going to last? What's going to matter when this world melts away? What is it that will have lasting significance? What ought you be paying attention to now? He says to the church, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. That's where wealth is. Uh, white clothes, he says so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness may not be exposed. He's talking here about purity and a clean life. Sometimes I just get, as a boy, just so filthy. I loved it. I loved to slide around in the mud and get dirty. And my mom didn't like it as much. And so she would wash those clothes to get them 
get that t-shirt white again. The Lord is saying, there's some impurity in your life, church, he's saying. There's some muddiness, there's some muck on you. And I want to give you a clean life, a pure life. I want, you to, I want holiness to be a part of your life. The Lord will always care about who you are on the outside. He cares most about the inside. And he changes you from the inside out. He doesn't just clean you up on the outside. He changes you from the inside. But when he changes you from the inside, of course, it comes to the outside. So that our behavior is more like the Lord. Our attitudes and our actions, what we say yes to or no to, what we do or don't do. God cares about purity. And then he advises them to get ointment. An ointment to spread in your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea was famous for its ointment. And he's saying here, I want you to have clear sight. I want you to be able to see. I want you to know what's right, good, what's wrong and bad. I want you to see the truth. So in our world, how do we know? How do we, how do we know right from wrong? Well, our culture says, they'll, we'll tell you. In fact, our culture says there's no real right and wrong. Unless it affects me. That's what our culture says. No right or wrong. And the Lord says something very different. The world says, here's what's right today. And by the way, I'm going to change it tomorrow. So what's, what's right or wrong tomorrow is going to change. You need to, be, you need to be ready to change because what used to be right, that's wrong now. What used to be wrong is right now. And that's like, it's liable to change next week to something different. So you need to be on your toes because at any moment we can just change these things. And the Lord's saying, I want you to have some discernment. You need some ointment on your eyes so that you can see the world as God sees it, so that you can see truth and error and good from bad and right from wrong and what to do and what not to do. And so the Lord's saying, I want you to understand your situation. And God in heaven shows us who he is so that we can see the reality of our own situation. Here's who I am, he's saying. Pure, holy, right, good, the amen, the originator of all that was created, the true and faithful witness. Here's the truth about you. You think you're rich, but you're living in poverty. You think you see, but man, you, your eyes are deteriorating. You're living a life that's less than it could be. You misunderstand the truth about who you are. There's a third characteristic I want you to note. They receive an invitation. The lukewarm Christian, the lukewarm church, receives an invitation. And let's go back to the text, and we'll note four things about the invitation. First, note that we're invited to respond. The Bible is saying here, God wants zeal from you. God wants zeal from you. Verse 19 says it like this. As many as I love, go back to the text, as many as I love, I what? Does he say, as many as I love, I give everything they want, and I just, whatever they want, I just say, here, because I love you, I just dispense these blessings that you'll enjoy. Is that it? Now, God blesses us. Is that fair to say? Does God bless us? Yeah, of course he does. But notice what the text says here. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now we say, God, that doesn't sound much like love. Because we've come to believe that love means you get whatever you want. If your parents love you, they just give you. We're like, grand, back to the grandparent thing. I just give the grandkids everything they want. You want candy, sugar, here you go. All the sugar you want, I just give it to them. But the Lord is saying, no, no, no. Love's not just here's some blessings you have and enjoy these blessings. Love, real love, involves things like rebuke. Because God loves you, he says no. He says stop. He says don't. And real love involves discipline. This is why grandparenting is better, because we don't have to do the discipline. We say, 
you go home and then they'll, if they love you, they'll discipline you. But listen, man, God, because he loves us, he rebukes us. And God, because he loves us, he disciplines us. He lets us go through difficulties and chastisement because he loves us. And notice, notice what the text says here in verse 19. So, here's the result. I love you, so I rebuke you and discipline you. And here's why. So, be zealous and repent. So, be zealous and repent. He's saying, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to rebuke you. And I'm doing that for the so. So that you will see your need to be zealous. And so that you will repent. To turn from your sin and to live a life of passion and zeal for me. So if any of you uh, followed the March Madness, you do the, the brackets and all of that. You follow the games at all. all right, I, listen, I'm, I'm a sports guy. You don't have to be if you don't want to. But many of you are sports people. and You cheer for your team. And great. It's wonderful. Great. I bet you got some things wrong already. Uh, how many people picked? Someone told me today they picked Fairleigh Dickinson, the, the 16th seed, to beat the number one seed. I mean, great, good on them. I mean, it's some, wonderful. But I'm, they got some other things wrong, I'm sure. Well, we get passionate about sports. It's not uncommon to see someone get really passionate about sports, scream and yell. I, saw, I did not watch the end of the game. I saw a picture of a coach, a grown coach, after the game, he was so excited, he took his shirt off in front of God and everyone and just waving it around with his shirt off. I mean, he was passionate. He was excited as he could be. Wow, great. But can I just say to you, now here's someone who cares about sports. You know I love sports. I try not to use sports illustrations all the time because I know not everybody loves sports. I, I, man, I really enjoy it. A lot of things you can learn from sports. I've always enjoyed playing sports, watching sports. Can I just say something about it? Why would we be so... We're, why would we save all of our zeal, all of our passion for sports, and then when it comes to the things of God, they're just like, oh, hum. Is that not odd? Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird that we put all this focus on things that will not last and will not count so little on the things that do? Okay, maybe it's not sports for you. Maybe it's money, man. You count your pennies. You love to... Wouldn't it be... Isn't it odd that you would save all of your energy and passion to get things that are going to melt away that won't last, and when it comes to the things of God, so lukewarm. Or popularity. Man, I am going to do everything I can to be liked and loved and popular, and when it comes to the things of God, just I'm neither hot nor cold. Is that not odd? And the Lord is saying to us, man, I, I will discipline you and I will rebuke you so be zealous and turn from the things that are wrong so that you turn to the things that are right. God is saying here, he wants zeal from you. He wants passion from you. It's unnatural for us not to be passionate about the things of God. The normal Christian life is a passionate life. The normal Christian life is zealous for the things of God. It recognizes that there are some things that will last for eternity and that they ought to be that we ought to give ourselves to those things that last and count more than the things that fade away. Secondly, would you note we're invited to open. The Bible is saying here, God wants fellowship with you. God wants fellowship with you. Verse 20 is a great verse. Jesus said, see, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking at a door. This is the illustration in our mind. I stand at the door and knock. Can you picture Jesus knocking at the door of your life? He said, if anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
There's nothing that says fellowship more than just eating a meal together, especially imagine someone coming into your home and eating a meal with you. They're sitting at your table. They're talking to you. They're fellowshipping with you. And the Lord is saying, that's what I want to do. I made you for fellowship with me. Christian, I made you for fellowship with me. It's not just to know about me. It's not just on on occasion to kind of give an acknowledgement on a Sunday morning, the tip of the hat to the Lord. But I want to come into your life, and I want to eat at the table of your heart, and I want fellowship and connection and closeness with you. So here's what I'm doing. I'm too polite just to barge in. I'm just saying I'm going to stand right here and knock, and you are going to either fellowship with me or you're not. And he's saying to the church at Laodicea, that's what I've been doing. It's part of why I rebuke you, part of why I discipline you, because I'm, I, want you to, I want fellowship with you. And so I knock at that door, but I'm waiting for you to invite me in. Now, I invited Christ to be my Savior as a nine-year-old, but the Lord wanted more for my life than just a lukewarm heart. And he's standing at the door of your life as he did the door of the church of Laodicea, and he's knocking, and he's saying, if you'll open the door, if you'll invite me, we can have a closeness a richness, a fellowship, a dynamic that is so real and important and meaningful and what your soul is longing for deep inside. We're invited to respond and to open. And then thirdly, we're invited to conquer. The Bible is telling us God wants victory for you. God wants victory for you. Verse 21 says, To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Did you know God wants victory for you? Now, here's how you can have victory. It's not because the Lord is saying, hey, listen, church, you just, man, you buckle up and work hard and do your best and everything will be okay. It's not that. You don't don't just saunter into the throne room of heaven and sit at the throne. We are fallen and broken and sinful. How could we ever imagine doing that? We imagine doing that because Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And Jesus, he won the victory for us. So that by repenting of our sins and trusting Christ, his righteousness is given to us. His righteousness imputed to us. His victory given to us. And we can have forgiveness, meaning, purpose, direction, guidance, peace because Jesus provided all of that on the cross of Calvary because he conquered we can conquer and I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne he's saying I'm inviting you in you can have victory you can have victory and salvation if you've never trusted Christ as Savior it's never going to be a better time than today to give your life to Christ trust him as your Savior Can I tell you, Christian, you can have victory in your life right here and now. Salvation gives you victory in eternity, but you can have victory right here and now. You don't have to stay a victim to your past or your problems or your pain. You can have victory over those things, over those struggles and problems and pain and your past, your issues, your difficulties. And you can have that because of what the Lord gives, because the Lord gives victory to us through Christ Jesus. We are invited to conquer To the one who conquers, I'll give the right to sit with me. The Lord gives that. The Lord gives that. And you can have victory in your life right here and right now. And then number four, we're invited to listen. Verse 22 ends as all of these churches. And let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. 
God wants to talk to you. God wants to talk to you. He says, I want you to hear. Here's what he's saying. This is not just for the church at Laodicea. This is for the church at O'Fallon. This is not just for the guys who lived 2,000 years ago. This is for those living today. This is not just for them. This is for us. This is for you. The Lord says, I want you to listen. Because I'm speaking to you about issues that matter. And listen, there's no, there's no issue that applies more to the church of this age and of the Western world than the church at Laodicea. We are so much like that church. Some of the same problems. The Western world faces these same difficulties. And the Lord is saying, can I tell you, church of today, it's not just, it's not just for them. It's for you. Listen. If you have ears to hear, I'll talk to you. I want you to see the reality of your situation. Maybe you came to this place, and the reality is that you are you're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. And God's saying to you, just as he said to my heart, finds, finds not enough. A world in the church and a world in the world, I've got something more for you. I want some passion. I want revival in your life. I want a life of zeal for the things that last and count. I want you to prioritize the things that are really important. I'm knocking at the door, wanting to come in and make your life everything it needs to be. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Some of you are here who need to be saved. You need to give your life to Christ. Just as I was convicted of my sin as a nine-year-old, you're here today convicted of your sin, that you need a Savior. And today, the Lord invites you to trust him as Savior. Will you repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you and receive him as Savior? Right where you are, you can give your life to Christ. Christian, when I talked about being a lukewarm Christian, that resonated with many of you, and you know the reality in your own life. That that's not just something from the church back then. That's, that's for you today. Would you say, Lord, I, I want to remember who you are and who I am. I find myself saying, acting as though I'm rich and I don't need anything. I'm fine. In reality, I, I'm wretched and pitiful and poor, blind and naked, and I need you. And so, Father, I, I know you're knocking on the door of my heart, and I'm going to open that door and say yes to all of you and everything you have for me. And, Father, I want to thank you for the truth you teach us. I want to thank you for caring about that church in Laodicea all those years ago and using it to speak to us in this day and this age and to our lives today. Father, thank you that you knock at that door. Thank you. You love us so much. You rebuke and you discipline. Thank you for telling us the truth of who you are so that this day we will respond to you and find a new passion and a revival spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.